Hey everybody, and welcome back to From Complex to Queens, Amazing Avenue's Minor League Podcast. I'm Steve Saipa, and this week it's just me and Lucas Lajos. Kenny is out celebrating with his girlfriend who just graduated, so congratulations to her. And how's it going, Lucas? All right, how are you? I'm doing good, I'm doing good. Um, I'm especially, I'm doing especially good because later on we're going to get to see the Battle of King's Landing in the penultimate episode of Game of Thrones. Oh man. I'm Very, so underwhelmed. Uh, I'm excited to see what happens. So, I mean, yeah, yeah. The uh, the second to last episodes have been pretty much the most exciting ones. The first season had uh, Ned Stark's death. Season two had the Battle of Blackwater. Season three had the Red Wedding. There was the Battle of Castle Black in the next season. The the Fighting Pits of Marine. The Battle of the Bastards. The Battle against the Whites in the North. So. Pretty much the penultimate episode of Game of Thrones is like the best one. And That's the fair. Mets, yeah, the Mets have actually had some pretty exciting penultimate games too. Uh, 2007 and 2008 top the list. Obviously, the next day things didn't work out, but you know, for the 24 hours beforehand, they, they were live. We had hope. They had momentum. Things are looking good. Uh, in 27, excuse me, 2007, they blew out the Marlins 13 to nothing with John Main going seven plus scoreless and he struck out 14. And then in 2008, Johan carried the team on his back and threw a shutout and the Mets won two to nothing. And in both years, 2007 and 2008, the team had some rookies that made their major league debuts that year. And those are the guys that we are going to promote, extend, or trade. So in 2008, there was a 23-year-old debuting Daniel Murphy. And then in 2007, there was a 21-year-old debuting Carlos Gomez and a 26-year-old debuting Carlos Muniz, relief pitcher. So of those three, who are you going to promote – and who are you going to extend? Because I think it's pretty obvious who's going to be traded in this situation. Carlos Muniz. I don't even remember this name. What? Yeah. He, uh, he threw like six innings of relief, and that was a career, basically. Huh. Okay, yeah, well, he's gone. He's getting traded. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's, pre- it's pretty much between Murphy and Gomez. I mean, that's a tough one. Both of these are guys that, like, took time to really figure it out. Um, I guess Murphy was better while he was figuring it out because he always had the contact skills, but like he was just a – how good was he? He was just kind of like a whatever two-win player for a while, and then suddenly he realized he could hit for power and did, started doing that. Gomez was like straight up bad for a while yeah. and then realized he could hit and hit for power. And then his hip got shredded and everything went downhill from there. Uh, I think I, I think I extend Murphy and I promote Gomez because Murphy's floor and his ceiling were actually higher. Um, so yeah, give me Murphy. I went the other way. I was gonna, uh, extend Gomez and promote Murphy. Mm-hmm. I think that Gomez is, I mean, obviously, you know, we're dealing with just all hypotheticals, but I think Gomez is 
ceiling was higher. You know, he had kind of five tool ceiling if everything went right and mm. he was developed properly and injuries didn't, you know, negatively impact him. Whereas Murphy just kind of was a higher floor guy that, you know, his ceiling did exponentially increase when they figured out like, hey, if you just swing with a more of a uh, uppercut to it, you can hit more more, more home runs. Great. But right. Gomez is just, you know, his speed, his defense, those things, I think, for me, give him the edge as like a long run kind of player. Yeah. I mean, I think I think either choice is really defensible here. Gomez is probably more exciting to watch just for the center field defense. And also Murphy's going to have those like five or six plays every year where you want to just scream at your TV. So <laughs> that's very true, too. Then again, Gomez had plenty of his own uh, thonker moments, if we think about it. So who knows? Also true, too. Well, uh, the Syracuse Mets this week went 3-3, three and three, and that puts them at 20-15 and 15 for the season, which is actually a half game ahead of the Scranton-Wilkes-Barre Rail Riders for first place in the International League North. So we have a first-place team finally. The Binghamton Rumble Ponies, they went 4-3 and three and are 19-12, and 12, which puts them two games behind the Trenton Thunder for first place in the International, excuse me, in the Eastern League Eastern Division. St. Lucie Mets, they went 2-4, and four, which puts them at 18-16 and 16 for the season, which is three and a half games behind the Fort Myer Miracle for first place in the Florida State League South. And finally are the Columbia Fireflies, and they actually had a decent week this week. They went 3-4, and four, so it's still a below 500 record for the week, but it's one of their better ones. And they are now 11-23 and 23 for the season which is seven and a half games behind the Charleston River Dogs for first place in the Sally Southern Division. I will say at least one of those Fireflies wins, I'm not even sure I want to call it a win. They scored three runs in the first inning without an RBI, just on two throwing errors, and then had like one base runner the rest of the game and won. Well, a win is a win. Yeah, I mean, you take it any way you can get it, especially when you're Nine and twenty, ten and what would you say they were? I'm sorry. Eleven and twenty-three. Eleven and twenty. Yeah, <laughs> not great. No, not at all. And what makes it worse is that we had so much hope for that team. We, I, I was thinking like, oh, they're gonna steamroll the division, and yeah, not, not, not exactly happening. I mean, Zapuki's been disappointing. Might be borked. Simeon Woods Richardson hasn't been great. Newton. Was hurt and keeps striking out. Vientos isn't hitting for power. Mauricio is hitting, but not with any, with no substance behind it. The rest of the team is just kind of meh. Yeah, it's. I don't know. Well, the short season teams are going to start opening in about a month, so maybe we're going to see some roster movement. Yeah, just to cer- cuz we were talking about Newton specifically last week. His he now has a strikeout rate under 40%, so maybe he's starting to pull out of this, but I could still see him getting uh sent to the shorts. Like which which isn't like the end end of the world. He's still only 20, but I could see them sending him to short season. Yeah, it's he's not going to be it's not going to be inappropriate at his age. Right. In the right. New York pen either, so. Right. All right. Well, our hitter of the week, someone who is not having such offensive struggles, is actually somebody that we just spoke about, Carlos Gomez. He played in five games this week, 
and he is, and for the week, he is hitting 421, 500, 1,000 with eight hits, two doubles, three home runs. And it is coming on a 455 bat bit, but, you know, when you're hot, that's what happens. Yep. Uh, he was born in Dominican Republic, Santiago, and long, long, long ago, the Mets signed him uh, for just $20,000. And as an interesting little tidbit, after he signed with the Mets, he wasn't, you know, uh, assigned to a team for basically a year and a half or so. So he was actually a carpenter during that time. Um, huh. And he specialized in making coffins. So very, uh... That's a little morbid. Yeah. <laughs> but did we ever get any details on why it took him so long to make the transition, or...? Don't know. Uh, he was signed in July, towards the end of July in 20, uh, 2002. And then he made his professional debut in Kingsport in, oh, excuse me, in the GCL in 2004. So basically huh. a year and a half he was not, uh, playing. That's crazy. I never knew that. Yeah. So, uh, like, well, yeah, he, he made his debut in 2004. He hit a combined 281, 324, 407 with the GCL Mets and Kingsport Mets, which is pretty good. 76 and 120 games. And he impressed the Mets so much with his performance that year and his maturity and his performance during spring training and at the complex and everything that they skipped him over high A and they sent him straight to Binghamton in 2006. And he started the season slow, partially due to a back injury and partially because he was a 20-year-old in double A. But he eventually got on track um, and he hit 281, 350, 423 for the year. And he was basically... A consensus top 100 prospect in baseball, generally ranked, you know, between 25 and 50 by the major prospect sources at the time. And he was considered the Mets' third best prospect after Fernando Martinez and Mike Pelfrey. Yikes. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> he was seen as a five-tool player. He had plus-plus speed, a good glove, good raw uh, power, a decent ability, especially... Um, in relation to his age to make contact. So there was a lot to like. And the Mets rushed him, as they did a lot of players during that period of time. And he made his major league debut on May 13th, 2007, at the tender age of 21. And he hit 232, 288, 304 in 58 games with the Mets and clearly wasn't ready. But he wouldn't get any more chances with the Mets because he was packaged along with Diolis Guerra, Phil Umber, and Kevin Mulvey, and he was sent to the Twins in exchange for Johan Santana. He didn't perform well in Minnesota either. He was still just very raw. Um, over the course of two seasons, he hit 248, 293, 352, and he was eventually traded to the Brewers in exchange for J.J. Hardy in November of 2009. And he struggled in his first couple of years with the Brewers, but then in 2012, everything finally clicked. So basically, in his first three years with Milwaukee, he hit 248, 296, 415. In his last three, he was a two-time All-Star that got MVP votes, and he hit a cumulative 276, 338, 468 uh, batting average. 
He was almost traded to the Mets in 2015 at the trade deadline, but as we all know, that fell through. And instead, he was traded along with Mike Fears to the Houston Astros in exchange for Josh Hader, Adrian Hauser, Brett Phillips, and Domingo Santana. Uh, ignoring the injuries that Yoannis Cespedes has had in his career, in his Mets career, um, it was definitely a blessing in disguise that the Mets weren't able to trade for him because mm. his career kind of cratered. Um, he hit 221, 277, 342 in a season and a half in Houston, and then he got released. And he had a little bit of a resurgence when he signed with Texas. Um, he hit 262, 345, 481 in basically a year and a couple of weeks with them. And then in 2018, he signed with the Tampa Bay Rays. And again, wasn't very good. He hit 208, 298, 336. So, um, you know, it's kind of been an up and down career for Gomez. Probably rushed to the major leagues way too fast uh-huh. and just wasn't really able to develop those tools. But, um, and no. we should also highlight the fact that that the the injury he got in Milwaukee at the beginning of the end of that peak was I mean hip labral injuries and labral injuries in general are just awful like they're hard to treat it's hard to recover from it's really hard hard to ever get back to where you were before it's very prone to arthritic development so right. that's I not mean, not a great way to go no and he's he's you know his time in Texas I think it was 110 games total you know, yeah. he's flashed being, you know, a, a a decent a decent hitter. Um his his numbers in Syracuse this year obviously at the triple A, but he's hitting two seventy two, three thirty one, four eighty two, and that's with the three thirteen BAPIP. So it's not like he's you know it's not like his numbers are crazy inflated and all of an all no. all an illusion. And let's be honest. Keon Broxton is currently hitting 152, 220, 147. I think that Carlos Gomez can do better than that. Right, and like the one thing you'd be losing there is is the the defense that Broxton gives you. But you already have Juan Lagares on the team. You don't need two guys that do nothing but give you a, a good center field glove. Right. Um, I mean, he has Broxton has the reputation of being a good fielder, but. Just the amount of time that he's been in the field has really been so limited. I don't yep. think it's really been a major difference. Right. No, I definitely like what I don't. I don't even. And to be clear, I don't think trading for Broxton was a bad move. Like the he's like Lagaris, but in theory he had more speed, so you could use him as a pinch runner, and he also had power, so he could run into them, run into a ball every once in a while. But it looks like the bat speed is just gone, and they haven't used him as a pinch runner much. So. I think you give the next man up a chance at some point um, because he's so redundant with Ligaris. I could also just see them cutting Broxton loose to make room for Lowry, but the bench is kind of a mess right now anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's not like they really traded. You know, it, it would be kind of sucky if they did just outright release Broxton because mm-hmm. they did trade players to acquire him, but it's not like they traded much. They they traded Bobby Wall, Adam Hill, and Felix Valerio. Yeah. And basically, Wall had the most upside of that group as possibly being, you know, a late innings kind of I thought, I thought Hill was potentially something. Like, I never, I was never particularly impressed with Wall, but I vaguely remember us talking about Hill as a marginally interesting mid-round pick at some point. But 
you're right. It, it's not much. There's nothing to worry about losing there, really. Yeah, I mean, so if he is released, you you just lost three players that probably were not going to amount to much. I'm pretty sure Wall is still hurt anyway. Yeah, he tore something or other. Yeah. As as is the case has been in most of his career, he's yep. injured somehow. Yep. And I mean, worst case scenario, you you cut him and you bring up Gomez, and Gomez doesn't really hit much. You know, uh, you're rearranging the deck chairs in the Titanic. Nothing really changed. Right. At best case scenario, all of a sudden he's able to hit. You know, then you have maybe a a solid bench piece, which the Mets are really lacking. Yeah, yeah, like, and it's. The, the the unfortunate thing is that they really need a a left-handed bat on the bench, and Gomez doesn't solve that issue. But they do need right-hand hitting. Well, I'm looking at his platoon splits, and he doesn't even have splits really, so uh, not not a fit in that sense either. But right, he can't be any worse than than Broxton has been at this point, and you don't need to glove only outfielders. No, well, hopefully this situation resolves itself. Yeah, Luckily, maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe Broxton just runs into three home runs next week and we, we look like idiots. Yeah, that would be great. I would like a curse where we look like idiots because the players that we crap on <laughs> suddenly do great. That's fine with me. Everyone on the Mets is bad. <laughs> well, uh, our next player, the pitcher of the week, is actually the first player that is a repeat this season. And it is Harold Gonzalez. He threw one game, he started one game, and he went six-plus innings, allowing no hits, no runs, uh, walking two, and striking out six. And that was en route to Binghamton Rumble, the Binghamton Rumble Pony's first no-hitter. Um, Ryder Ryan, he came in and finished things up. He threw two and a third innings. And it was the first no-hitter in Binghamton history since July 23rd, 2006. When Miguel Pinego, he threw one against the Portland Sea Dogs during a uh, seven-inning doubleheader. And the crazy thing is that this is the fifth no-hitter in the Eastern League this year, and it's mid-May. Uh, the f- first one, yeah, I know. First one was April 6th when Harrisburg Senators Eric Fetty, Jordan Mills, and Aaron Barrett threw a combined no-no against the Bowie Bay Sox. The next one was on April 24th when the Erie Seawolves uh, had Alex Fayeto and Drew Carlton throw one against, again, the Bowie Bay Sox. And then literally the next day after that, uh, Kyle Hart, Daniel McGrath, and Adam Lau on the Portland Sea Dogs threw one against the Rumble Ponies. And then on the 29th at the end of April, uh, Casey Mize threw one himself, the only uh no-hitter this season in the Eastern League that was thrown by just one individual against the Altoona Curve. So the last time that the Eastern League had this many no-hitters was way back in 2003 when there were five spaced out, you know, across the entire season. And the record for most is seven in 1967. And obviously no-hitters are a very fluky thing, so there's no way of predicting that there's going to be another one this season. But there's basically three and a half months left to go, so there's definitely enough time. And the trends are actually on the right side. Um, pitching is extremely dominant in the Eastern League this year. So far, you know, and it is basically just a month and a few weeks in, but so far the league average batting line in the Eastern League is 234, 
315-358 with a 630, uh, 673 OPS, and the Yikes. league average ERA is 3.58. <laughs> In 2018, just last year, the league average OPS was 716, and the league average ERA was 4.01. So that's a 50-point, basically, fluctuation. In 2017, again, the OPS was 727, and the ERA was 4.03. And you have to go back to 2015 to get to a point where pitching was as dominant as it is right now. That year, the league average was 256, 319, 372, with a 691 OPS and a league average ERA of six uh, 3.67. So pitching is in right now in the Eastern League. Maybe they need some of those juiced balls that AAA is getting right now, right? Yeah, like, that that is – I was looking. There's been no news or any kind of changes to Eastern League equipment. So that is a kind <laughs> of – that is an interesting little tidbit that in the Eastern League, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, pitching is extremely dominant. And then you just go up one level to AAA and hitters are just whacking the ball like never before. Yeah, it's it's frightening some of the numbers that are happening in AAA. Interesting, like most of these, most of those guys putting up, most of the names you mentioned for these nose hitters are either legitimate prospects or guys who have seen major league time already. Like Fetty, is it Fetty or Fed? I don't know actually. Uh, has seen time with the Nationals already and was a top prospect at one point. I mean, arguably still is a notable prospect. Fiedo is a somewhat controversial but notable prospect for the Tigers. Mai's another really good prospect for the Tigers. Um, so Harrell might be possibly the worst starter to get one of the no-hitters this season, which isn't an insult to Harrell. It's just lots of other notable guys. Yeah, uh, I think that's it's pretty solid that he is at the bottom rung of those names. Mm-hmm. Although there was the Portland Sea Dog uh, one with Kyle Hart, McGrath, yeah, Kyle, and Lau, right. so. I already forgot his name. Exactly. He's um, a 26 year old random starter in the Red Sox system and they might have the worst farm in baseball. So, uh, not, not notable. Uh, it, it is, uh, I mean, I, we've talked about this a couple times already, but Harold is fairly close to the, closer than we'd like him to be to the major league rotation. So. And seeing this kind of performance is at least marginally encouraging. It's like, oh, maybe he could survive for a little bit if he was thrown into the fire. But, well, I mean, his performance this year is very different from his performance in Double A uh, yeah. last season. Yeah, I mean, he so far, um, it's only been five games, you know, four starts and then one relief appearance. It's only twenty-five innings, but he has a two eighty-eight ERA um, and he has a. Very good walk rate and a strikeout per nine rate over, you know, nine. So, I mean, the but, strikeouts are way up. That's really yeah. interesting. It also comes with a 218 BAPIP, but, you know, again, in the minor leagues, good, you know, guys that are good have ways of mm-hmm. making sure that that BAPIP is either really high if you're a hitter or low if you're a pitcher. So it's not really, it's just a really an asterisk, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if you regress that a bit and regress the lift on base a bit, it's a mid three mid three ERA with strikeouts pushing eleven per nine innings right now, which is a big step up. Mm-hmm. And I wonder who's in the AAA rotation right now. It's Santiago and uh, Flexen. Flexen. Uh, 
Giannis? Is Giannis still there? Or did they send him down to double A? Yeah, I believe that he still is, but I don't recall him actually pitching after that debacle that he had a couple of days ago where yeah. he basically gave up like 13 runs, 10 yeah. earned or something like that. When, when your knuckleball's not working, it's, it's ugly. Yeah. Um, point is, there's not, there's not like tons of guys blocking Harrell at triple A, so perhaps another Maybe get three or four more good starts, and the Mets should probably move him up to AAA and see if he's a viable uh, shuttle arm. Oh, Oswald's going to be in that AAA rotation, um, and uh, Zach Lee. So, oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dodger <laughs> prospects of years gone by. Um, so yeah, I'd like to see. Hopefully, hopefully Harold can keep keep it going. It doesn't even need to be quite this good; just still solid. And then uh, we'll see him in AAA in a couple months, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I'm interested. I'm going to see Binghamton this week, and Harold's probably going to be pitching on one of the days that I'm there. So it'll be interesting to see what exactly it is that he's doing differently now. Because of course you've said that, and now you you've doomed yourself because you know <sighs> yeah. it's going. Yep, it's it's all over now. Oh well, there goes <laughs> that thought. Yeah. You're gonna but, get. Yeah. Uh, uh, I don't even know who else is in that double A rotation. Okay, anyway. Peterson, Harrell. Okay, uh, Dibrell is still in high A. You're gonna get some random filler arm and like it. I believe Chris Mazza. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's just uh, there is a pretty big I mean, uh, drop. Sixty percent of those arms are notable though. So you Michael Michael Gibbons. Oh, he got and shelled. Chris Mazza, uh, the two other guys, yeah. yeah. Gibbons gave up eight runs without getting an out, with getting one out this week. So, uh, fingers crossed you don't get that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it could either be good or very ugly. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll mm-hmm. see depending on how the weather is and everything this week. <sighs> All right. Well, we will be back after this. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And welcome back to From Complex to Queens. I'm Steve Saipa, and I'm joined by Lucas Vlahos. And this week, we are going to start our draft coverage. So we're going to kick off that in a minute, but I just want to announce the winner of our Copa de la Diversión contest. Um, the winner of two tickets to a Brooklyn Cyclones game to be decided at a later point by me and the winner is Alex Busso. So congratulations, Alex, and I'll be in contact, and we'll figure out all the details. And I want to thank everybody else that sent in emails and entered the contest, and we'll be having another one in a few weeks, so everybody stay tuned. So the Mets will be picking 12th in the draft. Um, They finished fourth place last year with a 77-85 and record, and 12 is kind of an interesting spot. Because the bona fide, you know, cream of the crap guys that you find at the top of the uh, of the draft boards aren't really left. So you're starting to, like, pick and look at guys with um, decent upsides, but 
kind of noticeable flaws. Nothing necessarily major, but, you know, you, you're starting to see the cracks. Would you agree that, and perhaps it's just a perception thing, but for the second straight year, it feels like their pick is right at the right right after your tier ends. It felt like last year, I mean, obviously Kellenic has been huge, but it felt like there was a clear top five with all the college hitters, and then there was a bit of a drop, and that's where the Mets were. And this year, it feels like... Yep, I just, agree. Yeah, so they've just gotten a little bit unlucky, it seems. Last year, I think that they were, were literally at that cutoff. This year, I think maybe it comes like three or four picks beforehand. Yeah, it's a little fuzzier, and it's not... Yeah. It's, yeah. But, I mean, there's still going to be good players available. Mm-hmm. So, who, you know, who is the guy that, in your heart, you are interested in the Mets picking? I want them to trade the entire system, convince MLB to change the rules, and let them draft Andrew Vaughn. Uh, n- oh, no, no, That's I'm, a good strategy. Yeah, it, yeah just lo- we lobby MLB, we trade for the second overall pick and get Andrew Vaughn. Uh, no, more more realistically, the guy – and there are a couple guys I was looking at, but the guy I was uh, – the guy that most intrigued me was Brett – I don't know if it's Batty or Beatty. Um, Beatty seems to make more sense, so I'm going to go with that. Uh, he's a third baseman from Lake Travis High School in Austin, Texas. Uh, Fangraphs has him 14th on their board with a 45 future value. We can debate the merits of their system ad nauseum, but they're one of the biggest free suppliers of information for this stuff. Um, uh, MLB.com's recent uh, mock draft had them going 19th to the Cardinals, and everything in that middle 10 is kind of fluid, so he's within the Mets' reasonable pick range. Um, he's got great uh, one of the better hit-power combinations in this draft. He's got a nice left-handed swing. Um, he's been compared... So I saw a couple comparisons to Nolan Gorman, uh, who the Cardinals took last year, um, guy with some contact issues, but big power and some defensive questions at third base. Um, Beatty was also the Gatorade baseball player of the year last year in Texas, where he hit 435, had 12 home runs, walked 40 times. Um, so yeah, it's like impressive production and a, and a, and a pro ready frame. Looks like your prototypical slugging third baseman. He's got a good arm, but fringy range, right? Um, and to to me, in in modern baseball, I'm okay living with someone with fringy range, uh, especially at the hot corner. I mean, you can position better, uh, you can train harder. Like Max Muncy has turned himself into an adequate infielder. So, um, but the most interesting part about Beatty to me is is his age, and he's 19 and a half as a high schooler, which obviously is very old. It makes him older than some of the junior college prospects in this in this draft. Um, and to me. Uh, so, so I could very easily see, uh, and, and other articles, I think Baseball America wrote an article about this, see that age, uh, damaging his draft status, where teams are gonna say, well, he's older than his class, so we can't really judge him, et cetera, et cetera. He hasn't put it up against pro caliber arms or college caliber arms, uh, what have you. Um, I have often argued not with any real scouting basis because I'm not a scout, but that, but that age, particularly age differences, which often come down to six months, eight months, uh, are sometimes overblown. Good performances will be kind of hand waved off because the guy's a little bit too old. Bad performances will be waved off a little bit because the guy's young for the level, right? And to to me, that's 
that's always felt a little cheap. I think it's, uh, I think uh, assigning blanket rules based on age is, is silly. And also I don't mind if a guy starts his, it needs to start his career. You're older than everyone else, right? You're still going to arguably that's better under the current arbitration system because you're actually going to control prime years in the late twenties. Um, so I feel like Beatty might be someone who, who gets a touch overlooked or touched undervalued due to that, um, due to that age issue. Uh, and that's why I th- thought he was interesting. Yeah, that's a good point about the age and everything like that. And honestly, when you're looking at guys that are like, you know, 18 to 20 in that range, there really isn't that much it, it, on the average anyway. There isn't really that much of like, mental or physical differences. It's not like the guys that are 20 are going to be the Hulk and you know, right. the guys that are, are 18 are nothing. I mean, I guess if you compare like a high schooler to like a college, like a freshman or whatever, like there's better facilities in college. Right. So they have that, that opportunity to, to mm-hmm. get in better shape. But that, that 100% I think is the bigger thing that when you're, in a college or pro environment, you're much more focused on baseball. You have access to much more equipment, better staff, et cetera, right? As opposed to, oh, I'm a year older in high school, so I'm a little bigger. But I still train in my home gym and spend 80% of my time in school or dealing with homework or, or, or all this other nonsense that isn't baseball. So I'm sure there there are like actual merits to to the worries about his age, but I think they get – I think they might be a bit overblown, and perhaps that has maybe caused people to overlook uh, what is a very talented high school bat. Well, you make a convincing case. Um, and I like the way his swing looks. He's got a pretty left-handed swing, but and I, I did I thought the load was fine. He doesn't. It's not too noisy or anything. But someone who actually is good at swing analysis can can comment more on that. <laughs> Well, the guy that I'm going to be focusing on in this draft um, is someone that should be available at 12. And there were a few guys. I think I, I think you'll agree with me that there might not be like you know like I was saying before the cream of the crap guys, mm-hmm. but there's a bunch of guys at 12 that are you know in, very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so the guy that I'm going with, and I'm going with my heart here, and I'm picking Jack Leiter, and okay. he's the son of Al Leiter, and Al is basically. The one reliable pitcher that the Mets had, you know, in all of the late 90s and early 2000s. Uh, Jack's currently a senior at Del Barton, a private school in Morristown, which is in New Jersey. Um, last season, 2018, he posted a 0.64 ERA in 54.1 innings, walking 18 and striking out 77. And so far this year, he has... Um, regressed a little bit. He has a 0.83 ERA in 33.2 innings, allowing uh, 11 walks and striking out 61. So when you factor in, you know, the very little, I think he put one game in his sophomore year. So when you factor in everything together, he has a cumulative 0.76 ERA in 92.1 innings, uh, allowing 44 hits, walking 33, and striking out 143. So Morris County isn't exactly like a baseball uh, hotbed, like SoCal, Texas, Bible Belt South, whatever. But the stuff is definitely legit. Um, I wasn't able to get to see him, but Ken was. He was. He went down to Del Barton uh, last week when he pitched against Montville on May fourth, 
And the fastball sat in the low to mid nineties, um, very consistently for four innings, and then it kind of backed up into the high eighties, low nineties, and the fifth and the sixth. Uh, he topped out at ninety five, but he hit it multiple times in multiple innings, and then it also had some natural sink and some natural arm side run to it. Um, the curveball and the slider are both high quality probably plus or at least above average pitches. And then he also mixes in a changeup. Uh, the curveball is a mid to high 70s, like knee buckling 12-6 bender. And he could throw it for strikes. He could throw it out of the zone to get guys to chase. And he's just able to basically put it wherever it feels like. Slider, um, not as impressive with the vertical movement. It doesn't really have much, but it's in the mid 80s and it has very sharp, sudden horizontal break. It's almost like a, like, like cutter action. And then the change up, uh, he doesn't really throw it much, but he has a feel for it. And it's, you know, a solid enough base that when and if he needs to focus on it in the, in the minors, it could become, you know, fringe to average pitch, which would give him like an above average fastball two above-average breaking balls, and then possibly an average-ish changeup. And the mechanics are nice. They're clean. Um, He has a little bit of crossfire in his delivery. He has a little bit of deception in his uh, mechanics. And he is 6'1", 195 pounds. So there's a little bit of room for him to possibly grow and add a little bit more muscle, which will give him more stamina, and that will keep that fastball velocity up in the in the low to mid 90s but there's also the chance that it doesn't grow or add much muscle so that is a little risky there and another risk the main risk really is that he has a commit a commitment to Vanderbilt and Vandy they always get their guy and that's going to be a tough commitment to break but I think if any team has a shot it is going to be the Mets for two reasons one Al Leiter, he, he stopped, he quit his work as a broadcaster a couple of months ago, specifically to spend time with his family, and he accepted a position with the Mets a couple of months ago to be a, um, a scouting and player development, scouting and player development advisor. So having a family member in the organization doesn't make a player a lock to sign. You know, Danny Alfonso was drafted last year and he didn't sign despite the fact that Edgardo Alfonso is the Cyclones manager. But having a family member in the organization definitely can't hurt, especially when when Alleyder's job would be basically helping and coaching minor league guys at all levels, from newly drafted guys to the guys at the top. So that's one one thing going in the Mets' favor. And the other is that they have a reputation you know, of developing high-quality pitchers pretty much better than anyone else the last couple of years, you know. Noah Syndergaard, Jacob deGrom, Stephen Madd, Zach Wheeler, Matt Harvey, all those guys came through the system, and at times those guys were flashing unhittable stuff. Um, some of them more frequently than others, but, you know, it's just those were all very good major league pitchers at certain points. And if a young pitcher is interested in getting the most out of his potential, the Mets system with all the coaches and everything, is one of the best places to uh, do it. So 12 might be an overreach for Leiter, but at the same time, I don't know if he would be available in the second round. You know, the Mets would be picking in like the 40s or so. And 
I don't know. Most of the guys that are available at 12 or, or probably will be, they don't really feel like they have as much upside as lighter might. Um, so, you know, new GM, he might want to try to be bold with his first pick. So, you know, if he's going to shoot his shot and go for the guy that might have the most difference maker potential, I think that lighter might be that guy. I think, I think that's all very fair. I mean, lighter was definitely someone I was interested in. Um, uh, I'm generally not a big fan of first round prep pitchers, but outside of the top 10, it, it's, it's a lot of, outside of the top 10, it's kind of just who do you think is going to be the best. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't hate it. Um, and the stuff is there, like the fast, he's got premium velocity, the breakers there. I think it would be a, a, a decent pick. And me, the unfortunate thing is that on, even if it is a reach, you're probably not going to get much of an underslot, uh, signing to float some money to later picks because of that strong Vanderbilt commit. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, he, they're going, they're going over slot and very much so if they want to lure him out from that yeah. commitment. Is Van, uh, I, I don't think it is, but Vanderbilt isn't a school with a reputation for abusing its arms, right? Uh, no, I wouldn't say so. I mean, it's not Rice or Yukon or, uh, What's the other one? Mm, slipping my mind at the moment. There's there, there's always three big offenders I think of, but it's not not Vanderbilt, so that's not really something to wave uh, convince him of. Uh, who was Kenny going to talk about? Was he going to? Yep, Kenny being uh, very diligent and everything. He sent us a recording, and Kenny's pick was Zach Thompson. So Kenny, go right ahead and tell us about him. Hello from Complex the Queens listeners, this is Ken Lavin, and uh, today I'd like to talk about a potential draft pick that the Mets have been linked to from a few different media outlets, a guy who they've been linked to with the 12th overall pick, and that's Zach Thompson, a left-handed starting pitcher from the University of Kentucky. Um, Thompson is a tall, lefty. Uh, not all that dissimilar from uh, 2017 first-round selection David Peterson or 2016 first-round selection Anthony Kay, in that he's sort of a lower-ceiling, higher-floor, um, they, they call them crafty lefties. Uh, so Thompson was born in Anderson, Indiana, and pitched for Wapahani High School in Selma, Indiana, uh, where he struck out 119 batters in 56 innings as a senior. He was originally drafted by the Tampa Bay Rays in the 11th round of the 2016 draft, but chose to honor his commitment to the University of Kentucky. And, uh, yeah, he, he shoved in his freshman year there, posting a 3.545 ERA in 75.2 innings, and striking out 96 against 38 walks, that's 11.42 K per nine against 4.52 walks per nine. And uh, he struggled in his sophomore season. He posted a 4.94 ERA in 31 innings, striking out only 42 and walking 20. And uh, perhaps most importantly for our purposes, uh, Thompson missed a full two months due to an elbow injury in his sophomore season. And, uh, yeah, he returned this season and has pitched generally pretty well, uh, posting a 2.08 ERA in 78 innings pitched across 12 starts so far this year, uh, and striking out 113 
against 30 walks. That's 13.03 K per nine against 3.46 walks per nine. Um, yeah, he's been pretty great as the Wildcats ace this season. Um, he's been basically the only or one of the very few upperclassmen on the team that had a lot of guys leave for the draft and graduation last year. Um, and they've Kentucky's leaned pretty hard on him to win them games, especially in conference. So there's a lot to like with Thompson. Um, he's basically he's pretty polished. He you can think of him as, as very similar to David Peterson. They have similar arm slots. Um, Thompson throws a little bit harder than Peterson did at the time of the draft. He throws about 91 to 94 with the fastball. I've seen him touch a little higher on, on ESPN. Uh, a few of their games have been televised. And um, in addition to the fastball, he throws two distinct, distinct breaking balls, a slider in the low to mid-80s that um, – Looks pretty good when it's at the higher end of that velocity range and um, gets a little slurvy at the lower end and a slower curve that sits in the high 70s that he likes to steal strikes with. The two breaking balls have a tendency to bleed together, and um, I'm pretty sure that whatever team ends up drafting him is probably going to have him scrap one and focus solely on the other and getting the other you know, as good as it can possibly be. He also supposedly throws a changeup, but um, I haven't really seen him rely on it too much in uh, a few starts, again, that I've seen on ESPN and other places, so I, I'm not putting much stock in that. Um, you know, while there's some good there, there's also some things to be wary about with Thompson. He still is working on, on learning how to harness his stuff. Uh, the command is a work in progress, as his 3.45 uh, walks per nine attests to. He probably should be able to dominate a little more without the walks, given just his level of raw stuff in, you know, against, you know, college, you know, level hitters. But um, the breaking pitches tend to bleed together. He doesn't always throw them super um, consistently, and um, he just has a tendency to lose the zone from time to time. The biggest red flag for Thompson is that he has quite a lengthy injury history. As we, as I said earlier, he missed a full two months in his uh, sophomore season to an elbow injury, which for any pitcher is a pretty big red flag. And um, this season, as Kentucky's ace, he's been p- pushed very hard to win them games. I saw somewhere on Twitter that um, in his last start against Arkansas, I believe on May 5th, he threw upwards of 120 pitches to help secure them the win. Uh, it was the second game of a doubleheader, so there's some reason why he, you would push your starter a little bit harder, but still, 120 pitches in an outing is a lot, and, um, you know, I, I wouldn't generally think that you would want to push a guy that hard with, you know, the injury history that he has. Um, so my thoughts on taking a pitcher like Thompson <clears> – <throat> that high in the draft with the 12th pick um, is it kind of reminds me of the Mets, you know, draft choice when they chose Anthony Kay in 2016. You know, they're both polished college lefties with durability concerns. Kay ended up needing surgery immediately after the draft and missed his entire season and has kind of moved slowly ever since as they've tried to build up innings and everything after surgery. And, um, Generally, I, I think that it's a profile best avoided that early. 
you've got a guy who, you know, doesn't necessarily have top of the rotation potential. And the value of drafting that guy is that you can get him to the big leagues relatively quickly. Now, his injury history being what it is, there's a risk that he's going to miss significant time due to some type of elbow injury in the near future, which would slow that down. So you, essentially what you're drafting is a, um, you know, a high floor, uh, low ceiling pick that might take a little while just from his elbow being able to withstand a starter's workload. So in my opinion, I, I think that there's probably, you know, going to be better options on the board at 12. Um, I'd rather them go with somebody who has a little more upside than a, a high-floor college pitching prospect that, um, you know, seems to be a profile that they, they really enjoy. That being said, they could probably do a lot worse than Zach Thompson at, at number 12. You know, there's some pitchability there. Um, I could see the changeup getting a little better once he gets into pro ball and, you know, doesn't need to or will need a third pitch to, to turn around a lineup multiple times. Um, like I said, they could do a lot worse, but with the injury risk, there there's definitely something, some red flags in the profile. So, All right, well, that was our discussion of uh, Zach Thompson, and um, thank you so much. All right, so that is our three uh, draft hopefuls. So I had I, for, I had a joke I forgot to make, unfortunately, and now it's going to be lame. Uh, but, well, go ahead anyway. Uh, Van Wagenen only wants to acquire third baseman, right? So he should definitely draft Beatty. That Given that pretty, every, every everyone that got this offseason is now playing at third base. That is very true. But he's not kind of old and washed up, so... That's that's also uh, Davis isn't old and washed up, but yeah. <laughs> we're still not convinced on Davis. No, no, you? definitely not. He's old, but I guess he's washed up. I don't know. <laughs> well, speaking of old and washed up players, I guess that's a good segue to oh yeah, that guy. Oh, that is perfect. Nice. <laughs> yep. For what we had, that's the best segue we've had into this. I think so. <laughs> uh, do you want to go first? Sure. Sure. Well, oh yeah, my that guy for this week is Greg Peavy. Um, on the on May seventh in twenty two thousand fourteen, he pitched a nine inning shutout against the New Hampshire Fisher Cats. Um, he scattered a pair of hits, but he didn't allow any runs. He didn't uh, walk anybody, and he struck out six. So. PV was drafted by the Mets in the sixth round in 2010, and he was actually picked twice before that, once out of high school in 2007 in the 24th round by the Yankees. And then when he was a sophomore, uh, he was eligible for the draft, and he was picked by the Astros. Um, him and the Mets, they came to terms on a contract literally an hour before the deadline. And he did get a nice bonus out of that. It was uh, a $200,000 signing bonus. But he wasn't able to make his professional debut that year as a result. So he was kind of not a year late, but he missed a couple of months. A year late and would've... a couple dollars ahead. Yeah, yeah. He probably would have pitched for, you know, Brooklyn anyway. It would have been some 30 meaningless innings. So it probably didn't really affect him much at all. Um, when he did make his professional debut, he was assigned to the Savannah Sadnats. 
And then he made his way to St. Lucie midway through the year, and he was pretty solid. Um, he posted a 3.47 ERA in 137 innings. Um, he was assigned to Binghamton the next year, which is 2012. And like a lot of other guys, you know, the jump from the lower levels of the minors to the upper levels was a big one. And PV pretty much spent the next couple of years shuttling between Binghamton and the Las Vegas 51s, posting bloated ERAs in the fours and fives. He basically, he did have one good year though. Um, 2014, he won Binghamton Pitcher of the Year honors. And that year he went 11 and 3 with a 294 ERA in 115 innings. But that was basically the high water mark for him. Um, that winter in 2014 at the GM meetings, he was selected by the Twins in the, in the minor league portion of the Rule 5 draft. And he was assigned to the Chattanooga, Chattanooga Lookouts, which are the Twins' double A team. And then the Rochester Red Wings, their triple-A team. But pretty much like with the Mets, he was overmatched in the Southern League and the International League. And Minnesota released him after that one year. And he's been working as a coach for the Northwest Futures Baseball Academy ever since. And the main reason why PV didn't really take to the upper levels of the minors is that his stuff was just underwhelming. Um, he was mainly a fastball slider guy and was considered kind of intriguing as a prep arm, but his stuff just didn't really develop. Um, his fastball basically sat in the high 80s to low 90s and could get as high as 94, and his slider flashed above average. But by the time he was... In, in, the, in the later stage of his career, his fastball was sitting in the upper 80s, touching like 91, 92, and his slider really hadn't progressed. It still kind of flashed. So he just didn't really have anything in the tank at that point. Another another Met draft pick arm coming up short. Yep, a lot of those. Uh, so... My guy actually is another tie-in with Carlos Gomez, particularly after that tidbit about him actually signing in 2002, which I didn't know. Um, so I was looking at Bobby Malik. He was a center fielder drafted in the fourth round of the 2002 draft. Uh, same year the Mets took Casimir in the first, then didn't have picks for the second and third. Um, back in 2006, uh, well, if if... See, every week I have my Fangraphs page open with this, and then I inevitably <laughs> close it in the midst of our other discussions and have to scramble to reopen it. Um, here we go. Uh, so from the 1st of May to the 12th of May in 20, 2006, he had two homers and 42 at-bats. The advanced stats, he was 286, 333, 548, an 881 OPS, and a 147 uh, weighted. So a nice little two-week stretch. Um, ultimately, he never never made it past... Uh, double A really. He got a brief cup of coffee in triple A in 2006, uh, but fizzled out there. Uh, I think there were some injuries mixed in as well. Uh, after two that, he didn't really play much at all in 2007. Uh, wound up with the Dodgers for 65 plate appearances at their double A affiliate in 2008. And, uh, after that, uh, was out of baseball. Oddly, while I was, uh, uh, Looking, re- reading about this guy, I found that he is now a multi-unit franchisee for Jimmy John's in Florida. And no, I'm not making that up. I found a podcast where he's talking about being a baseball player to a multi-unit franchisee. 
it's it's always kind of weird to see guys that were minor league players then uh you know i mean obviously if if you don't make it you need to you know you, you're not lasting on whatever your signing bonus was mm-hmm. and your paltry minor league salary it's always kind of jarring to see guys that you either knew or knew of or whatever from baseball then have to kind of transition back into regular society you know whatever right. you want to call it right right I mean, he was a really good college baseball player. He was a three-time All-American. He was a Big Ten Baseball Player of the Year twice or once for for Michigan State. So, like, he had a a real successful career before being drafted. And, I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of guys who who struggle to to put things together after their baseball life ends. So so good for him on finding a way. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there have been more than their fair share of guys that have become, you know, alcoholics and whatever else bad things because you know they were at the pinnacle and then now they're just regular joes Mm -hmm. i mean he uh apparently the the reason he made moved into owning jimmy johns or franchising jimmy johns is because that is what he would eat in college which is this just like (laughs) i mean there's continuity (laughs) i'm just glad this exists that this content exists out there Probably not many other places that you are uh, learning little tidbits like that. Uh-huh. Well, he's a Jimmy John's franchisee. Carlos Gomez built coffins. This is just a very educational day today. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> Talents outside of baseball. Mm-hmm. Well, have any, uh, do you have any other last words for the week? Uh, just a happy Mother's Day to, to everyone out there. Hope everyone's uh, – the weather's not great in New York City, but hope everyone had a good time anyway. I did. Those are very good last words. Well, if anyone has any questions, comments, whatever, send us an email from complex to queens, one word, at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter. You can ask us questions there. You can make rude comments, whatever you like. I am <laughs> at Steve Saipa. Lucas is at lvlahos343. And Ken is at, at ken Levin 91 Subscribe to the podcast, rate it, review it, leave us comments, whatever you want to do, and thank you for listening. And we will be back next week to recap the fifth week of the 2019 Mono League season.